Welcome to church, guys. This is great. This is really fun. If you brought your Bible today, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. If you didn't bring your Bible, we have some place at the ends of the rows. Go ahead and grab that one or ask your neighbor that you met in the four-minute conversation to pass it down to you. If you can't read it or reach it, and um, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you, okay? Well, if you're newer with Sedaris, let me bring you up to speed with what we're doing here uh, in our teaching times on Sunday mornings. Currently, we are in a sermon series um, that we have entitled, What Happened on That Cross? What Happened on That Cross? Um, because uh, the cross is, has been the central element of the Christian uh, message, the central element of the gospel of, of, uh, of Jesus. The cross has been the central element of that for, for 2,000 years, and we just went through the, the gospel of, according to Mark, where each week we took a different passage out of the gospel according to Mark, and we realized that we had to speed through the death part, the cross part, because we put all of it into one service on Good Friday, which was great. Uh, if, if you were with us, it was a really a meaningful time of processing through the death of Jesus. But because the cross is such a central part to the, the Christian method, um, or the, 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 the Christian worldview, I guess you could say, because the cross is such a central part to that, we were like, we need to talk about this a little bit more. Um, and in some sense, we're always talking about the death of Jesus on Sunday mornings. We'll, we'll talk about the death of Jesus often, but we wanted to give it its own services to breathe in. Because what we find um, is that the cross started something very, very significant. You see, we, we're calling the sermon series What Happened on That Cross because around the, the lifetime of Jesus, um, there were a handful of other religious revolutionaries that were actually crucified. That, that did the, the same kind of proceedings that happened to Jesus. We find this by looking at the other historians um, of the time of Jesus in the first century. Um, and, but Jesus's cross, that cross, is the only one that sparked a movement that continues 2,000 years later with something like two billion adherents that are alive today that would call themselves Christians. And so that, something really important happened on that cross, and we're unpacking that together. Um, last week, Dave showed how this thing called atonement happened on that cross, and, and, and that's just a fancy word for the sin of everybody who would unite themselves by having faith in Jesus, that would unite themselves to Jesus by placing their faith in him. Their sin was on Jesus, and Jesus experienced God's justice, judgment, or wrath, whichever word you prefer, for that sin in himself on the cross. Um, that was a great sermon. I, ho I hope you're here to, to hear it. And to this week, we're going to be building on that because this week, what we're, the phrase we're going to be unpacking of something that happened on that cross is Jesus defeated Satan and evil on that cross. Jesus defeated Satan and evil on that cross. Now, that's a pretty big statement, and there's likely a lot of knee-jerk reactions uh, that come to that statement, right? Um, the first one is probably, uh, if you're a non-Christian, um, there's some assumptions built into that statement. Uh, I, I actually come from a scientific background, so I'm actually all about being like, hey, let's get clear about what the assumptions are here, and, and let's talk about them, okay? And there's a big assumption in that statement, and it goes like this, um, Satan exists, Satan exists. That's a, a pretty big statement. In fact, it's actually more unbelievable nowadays in our culture than the fact that God exists. 
uh, Gallup polls conducted over the past couple of years uh, asked, asked questions of what people believe in, and uh, they asked, do you believe that there is a God, to which 11% of American culture replied, no. And then they followed up with a, a, a second question, do you believe that there's a devil, to which 27% of our culture replied no, and then another 12% replied they weren't sure. And so this is a pretty big assumption that 40% of American culture and perhaps even more of, um, of Seattle culture, I kind of think Seattle's kind of outpaces American culture when it comes to unbelief in God and Satan, that they can't get on board with it, that this is a pretty big assumption. Now, this is how assumptions work. They're just assumptions. And so if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, I'm gonna invite you to just pick up that assumption with us, okay? Because this is how assumptions work. Assumptions are things that you pick up in order that you can examine a hypothesis to see if it, you can come to a very good explanation of reality. That's all that assumptions are. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to pick up this assumption with us that, that Satan exists, okay? To e examine this hypothesis to see if it might explain your reality. And if it doesn't and you think it's all crazy, you can just put it down afterwards. That's the great thing about assumptions. You can just pick them up and put them down. That's how they work in science. I love science. Uh, anyways, so... Um, yeah, that's the first knee-jerk reaction. Now, there's other knee-jerk reactions that come um, for Christians when we say that Satan has been defeated at the cross. And, and they're actually embodied by two kind of types of disciples. The first disciple is what I call the superstitious disciple, the superstitious disciple. Um, the superstitious disciple is um, represented in Scripture by one of the disciples of Jesus named Nathaniel. Okay, um, at one point, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he calls a guy to follow him named Philip. Philip is like, oh, this Jesus guy, is, he's pretty cool. He says he's the Messiah. So he goes to his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel's sitting underneath a tree. I don't know what he's doing, cracking coconuts, something. He's sitting, Nathaniel's sitting under a tree, and Philip says, hey, come on, I think I found the Messiah. And so Nathaniel's like, all right. And so he, he follows Philip to go meet Jesus, and Jesus sees him approaching, and he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's a pretty cool assessment of your character. I mean, he's probably a pretty good friend to have, Nathaniel. And, but Nathaniel looks back at Jesus, and he's like, we've never met. How do you know me? And, and Jesus says, well, I saw you under the tree before Philip went and got you. And Nathaniel all of a sudden realized that something supernatural is happening. There's no way Jesus, that anybody saw him there, let alone this Jesus. And he falls on his knees and he says, you are the son of God, just right away. See, he saw one little, mi one little miracle and he blindly accepted everything. This is the superstitious disciple. And on the one hand, superstitious disciples are great. Jesus commends this type of faith. He does. He loves it. And, but on the other hand, what can happen is all of a sudden, the, the vast majority of Christian beliefs are just accepted blindly and not really pressed into. And when these, the, the, these uh, beliefs about the cross in particular are not pressed into, then all of a sudden that which fuels a Christian life, a meaningful Christian and satisfactory life in the world, is no longer there. And so uh, you can know you're a, a superstitious disciple today if, if, by just trying to answer this question. Um, when was the last time you thought about Satan? When was the last time that his reality kind of broke into your consciousness even 
If it's been a really long time, you may be a superstitious disciple. Well, that's okay, that's okay, that, that's why we're here today. Um, the other disciple is what I call the skeptical disciple, and, and that disciple is represented by Thomas. Uh, Jesus had a disciple named Thomas, and after Jesus, was di- after Jesus died and rose again, he went and appeared to all of his disciples. But the only thing is that Thomas wasn't there. Like, Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples, and Thomas was off doing something else, who knows what. And so the other 11 disciples come to Thomas, and they're like, hey man, we saw Jesus. And Thomas looks at him, and he's like, no, I don't think so. I'm not buying that, because he died. Uh, the only way I'll believe is if I get to see him and touch where the nails went through his hands. That's the only way I'm going to believe. You see, the, the skeptical disciple questions everything. But what's really cool about Thomas's story is when Jesus appears to the disciples again, he comes up to Thomas and says, hey, you want to touch him? <laughs> and so he gets to touch him. And so that's what's really cool about the skeptical disciple is that Jesus will often uh, meet the questions of the skeptical disciple as long as this, this disciple's kind of leaning forward and into relationship humbly, asking real questions. Jesus meets those, those questions. And the way to know that, that you're a, skeptic, a skeptical disciple, oh, I wanted to say, but the, the, on the other side, skeptical disciples, when they come into the counterintuitive pieces of the gospel, what they can do sometimes, though, is see their questions as completely insurmountable and then give up. That's what skeptical disciples are prone to do as well. And, and you, you know you're a skeptical disciple is, is if when you encounter this phrase of Satan was defeated on the cross, you kind of respond with, really? Because my observation doesn't match with that phrase. In fact, there's lots of evil in the world um, and lots of it could be propagated by Satan, I suppose. And you're saying that Satan was defeated? Isn't that a little bit strong of a phrase? All right. But, uh, and so um, we have superstitious disciples, skeptics, uh, potentially non-Christians here who can't, who I'm inviting to get on board with this, these assumptions, and we're going to examine this phrase together again, uh, together today, okay? Um, and it's going to be a fun morning. I'm excited to do it with you guys. This phrase that Satan was defeated on that cross, Satan and evil both were defeated on that cross. Um, and the way that we're going to do that this morning is by first unpacking the greater war that was going on uh, that the battle of the cross actually waged against. Um, just like Gettysburg, uh, you can't understand the battle of Gettysburg unless you understand the Civil War, right? Like, it's pretty unintelligible, actually, unless you understand the Civil War. So, so we're going to understand the greater war together, and then we're going to unpack the decisive battle of the cross— and, and then we're going to look at the resulting state of affairs because this is a little bit counterintuitive to the skeptic's point. It's a little bit counterintuitive, all right? Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. So l- let's start with this greater war that's going on. Who is Satan? Who is Satan? Uh, like I said, I want to be really clear about all the assumptions that we're making uh, today. Um, we actually don't have a whole lot of the Bible that speaks to who Satan is and how he came to be on earth. Um, we, there actually isn't a bunch in here that tells us that. But we do have the, the firsthand testimony of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, he, says, he, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven down to earth. I saw Satan be cast out of heaven down to earth. 
And the subtext there is that some sort of rebellion happened uh, between Satan, who is an angelic being of sorts, and God. That there is a rebellion that Satan sought to, to rebel under God and take control of the heavenly realms, and God got rid of him. Now, this is a little bit strange because this gives us a very, very natural question at this point. If you're asking this question, uh, extra props to you because um, if God was good and powerful, why would he treat the earth as his trash can, right? Like, why wouldn't God just eliminate Satan up there in the heavenly realms? Why does he seem to cast Satan down to earth like it's a, a giant trash can? I didn't think of that. One of my non-Christian friends did. I think it's hilarious and beautiful. You know, like, why? So that's a very natural question, and we're going to come back to that question later. So I just want you to take that question, if you have it, and put it in your pocket. We're going to take it out later. We just need a little bit more foundation before we address it. I mean, this is a question that anybody who's been trying to, like, answer life's biggest questions has to wrestle with, Um, and we're going to wrestle with it together later, okay? Okay, but for now... What I want to see is a, a show of hands. Who has more than one sibling? Who, lots of people have more than one siblings. This is great. This is great. Well, for those of you who don't have uh, more than one sibling, um, this is what uh, happens in households with more than one sibling. A vast uh, variety of board games are open to you. Okay, so many board games uh, in your family. Uh, I come from a larger family. I have three little brothers, and we played board games all the time. One of our favorites was the never-ending game of Monopoly. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of it. Um, and something's very interesting can happen when you have a board game with, that's taking place between more than two players, and, and that's at one point in the game, it becomes very apparent to one of the players, to one of my brothers, that it might not be this role, it might not be next role, it might be five roles later, um, but they're done. <laughs> they're done, you know, like, there's no way you can squeak this out, you don't have enough money, and clearly you don't have enough luck, like, you're, you're done, you know? And, and you, if you're very observant, you can see them make a very real decision, because everybody who's done in a board game has a very real decision to make, and it goes like this. One, you can go quietly, do your roles, pay people who you owe, what you owe, and then take your piece off the board, right? You're done. Or, which was usually elected in my household, you can try to sabotage the game (laughs) and try to ruin the experience for everybody else in the game, you know? Like, why, if you land on that person's property and you can't pay, you can't give them the, the properties, right? Like, you need to just go out, the properties go back to the bank where everybody can have a fair chance at getting them again, right? But no, my brother sought to sabotage, and so did I, you know? <laughs> whoever, whoever they thought was responsible for their demise. Um, and this is actually a really great analogy for how to understand Satan's activity here in creation as well. Satan is that salty board game loser who has on his way out, he's been cast down to earth, and he is determined to ruin reality, to ruin creation for everybody else involved in it. Just like me and my brothers at Monopoly or Halo or anything. Sabotage. Sabotage. And, and the first place that we see this, um, the first place that we see this is actually in um, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is, is uh, 
probably a short time after uh, Satan was cast to the earth. It was sometime after God created and before the fall. Um, and so we're gonna look at the fall in Genesis chapter three where we see him as the salty, board, the salty losing board game player. We're gonna put it up here on the screen for you. Um, all right, this is uh, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's what, or in the middle of the garden, this is a single tree. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate too. All right, so, so this is the, the fall in the Garden of Eden. This is the rebellion that Adam and Eve uh, participate in. Uh, they're invited to with Satan. Uh, we're not actually gonna get into their rebellion, but I'll just say a couple sentences on it really quick. Um, them taking fruit from the, from the tree of good and evil is symbolic for, for them uh, trying to decide what was right and wrong on their own. Um, and what we find in the creation account then is that humanity was meant to be dependent on God for that judgment, on what was good and what was evil. And, and Adam and Eve seek to actually make those judgments on their own. They get rid of this dependent relationship on God to determine these things, and they want to independently make those decisions on their own, what's right, what's wrong. And this is rebellion before God. They're tempted by Satan to do this. Now, now why is Satan doing this? Why is Satan doing it this way? Well, what we find in in scripture is actually that Satan is very limited in the way that he can sabotage the board game. Very, very limited in how he can do do that. Just like my brother, if he's on his way out of Monopoly, he can't reach across the board and just take my money. You know, there are some rules in place. He has to try to sabotage through other uh, other stranger side deals, you know, that he always managed to do really good. But Satan, in the same way, he is limited in what he can actually do, and so his strategy becomes (laughs) very interesting. He seeks to get humanity at odds with God. He seeks to get humanity at odds with God. Um, And why does he do this? Well, because he came from heaven, and he has a really good theology of how God works, He understands that God is just and that any rebellion underneath God has to be met uh, by his judgment. He actually experienced this firsthand, right, in being cast down to earth. And so he knows that if he can just get humanity at odds with God, that they're gonna be lined up for, to, to be completely destroyed just like he is. This is Satan's strategy. Um, Elsewhere in scripture, uh, Satan is called the accuser, the accuser, and that's because he tricks humanity into rebelling against God, and then he points. He says, see, they rebelled against you. They they, They deserve to be, have just punishment executed on them for rebelling against you. And he knows that God's character necessitates that. He's very clever. He's very clever in this way, all right? And it seems that he's won. 
It seems in this fall, this account of the fall in Genesis 3 that he's won. Uh, look at these curses here in Genesis 3 that, um, that come as a result. This is God speaking now, okay? So God is speaking these curses because humans are at odds with God. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So pain, turmoil, hardship, uncertainty, more pain, eventually death. It seems here that Satan has won. He's sabotaged all of creation. But there's actually one more curse in here too, and that's something that God speaks to Satan himself. It's in verse 15. We'll put that up here for you. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is talking about a lot more than the fact that humans aren't gonna get along with snakes. It's talking a lot more than that. And we know that because this, this word offspring, it, could, it, it can be plural or singular, Right? Like if someone's talking about their offspring, they can be talking about their only child or all their children. Up here, it's in the singular format. And then it's followed up at the end here. It's clearly singular too because it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this isn't a war that's gonna happen between, even though Satan's gonna have an offspring, this isn't a war that happens between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. This is a war that happens between Satan himself and the woman's offspring. This is very interesting here. So here we have a being that's gonna persist through time that eventually is gonna be in a showdown with one of the woman's offspring. This is the first prophecy of the coming of a Messiah or a prophet figure of Jesus some 1,300 years before Jesus actually showed up on the scene. scene. All right, so Satan's strategy actually persists, however. It seems that this is a time that's set in the future from this time when it was proclaimed here, and Satan's strategy actually has full, um, full power over the world. His strategy is, is winning and he's doing great, so much so that when Jesus shows up on earth, he calls Satan the ruler of this world. So Satan's doing pretty good. Satan had, had made a lot of, of progress by the time Jesus showed up on the scene. So that's the greater context of the war that we're in. And Jesus showed up on the scene and started to, uh, and, and brought about this battle of the cross. He brought about this battle of the cross, and we're gonna look at what Jesus said the cross will accomplish. He's talking before he died, what the cross is going to accomplish, and that's why we're in John chapter 12 today. All right, John chapter 12. Um, Let me set the scene for you. Jesus is in the final week of his life here. He's in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is teeming with people. Tons of people from all over the Roman world have showed up there, mostly Jews, but also anybody who uh, has converted to Judaism uh, from that that aren't um, 
socially Jewish, but have converted to Judaism, and uh, these would be God-fearing Gentiles who Luke calls Greeks. And these Greeks uh, group together and they wanna ask Jesus some questions. And, and that's what we're doing. And th- th- that's what uh, John records here in this conversation, all right? So pick it up in verse 20 with me. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a very strange way to start a conversation, (laughs) right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, in the book of John, um, Jesus uses this phrase, the hour has come, uh, 10 times. And if you look to the context of this phrase, he's always referring to his death. He's always talking about his death. Um, five times, uh, right, right before this, uh, the first five times it says that his hour has not yet come. The last five times he's talking about how the hour has come, and in this last week of Jerusalem is where it starts. The hour has come. And he links his death with glory. He links his death with glory. But I don't want to take this for granted, because if you were raised in the West, um, in, in Western culture, this is a very natural connection for you to make death and glory, okay? Everybody loves Braveheart. I mean, who doesn't love Braveheart? See, uh, see, there you go. Everybody loves Braveheart. Everybody loves Braveheart. Um, And that's because death and glory are very closely linked in Western culture because Western culture was actually um, created, all the big people who kind of uh, started it, ruled it, and and created it um, came from a Christian worldview. And even if you're not a Christian in the resulting Western uh, culture, there are elements of this Christian worldview that persist, that you hold on to. Um, It's very interesting. It's called a culture of post-Christian culture, uh, post-Christian culture, a culture that, where people may reject Christ, but there's actually these, uh, these elements of a Christian worldview that we hold still. And one of them is the fact that death and glory can go hand in hand. But this would have been nonsense to these hearers here in Jesus' day. Because to them, if um, God, or if you were killed in a very violent way, that was actually a testimony that God had removed his favor from you. That God or the gods had removed their favor for you. It was the clearest indication that God or the gods had actually rejected you. And so he's saying something that's completely unintelligible to these guys, that his death is gonna bring glory. The only way that can happen is if someone else is at work because you're dead. You can't do anything, right, to bring glory. And Jesus shows them that's exactly what's gonna take place. Uh, skip down to verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And so here we have God saying that, yep, I'm gonna work through this death to glorify my name, to bring glory. All right, so how is that actually gonna work? That's our question here. And Jesus unpacks that in our next verses. All right, verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now this phrase, lifted up, was actually an idiom of the day that referred to crucifixion. Um, that's why I did this with my hand when I read it. Because so it's an idiom for crucifixion, actually. And John wants us readers to know that. Look at verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the, the insider John uh, kind of unpacks it for us. But then we even see that these Greeks understand that Jesus is talking about death too. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him. We have heard, so the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They're like, well, the the Messiah is supposed to live forever, but if you're going to be lifted up or if you're going to be put on the cross, how can you be the Messiah? Who is the Son of Man? Where, Where is this guy that we can find him then? So Jesus is clearly talking about his death here. And if you go back to verse 31, it's very clear that this death is he's linking it with a judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Be cast out. This phrase, be cast out, occurs like somewhere between 40 and 50 times in the gospel accounts. Be cast out. And it always referred to a time when when Jesus or one of his disciples would uh, encounter someone who a demon had taken over and, and had limited their power that they could do, had started controlling their life in some ways, and they would go up and they would cast the demon out. Uh, it occurs like 40, 50 times in the, these four, four gospels. But now the object isn't a lowly demon. Now the object is the big guy. And the place is the whole world. Because Satan has power over the whole world, Jesus says, the ruler of this world, and he's going to cast him out. He's going to cast him out. That's a very powerful thing to do, right? Very, very powerful thing to cast out Satan, who had been this, this uh, eternally existing being, I guess. Well, he was created at one point, but existing throughout history and cast him out from his influence over the whole world. This is a very powerful thing to do. In fact, this is where the church for the first 1,000 years of its existence, if you would have asked them, hey, how do we know that, that God is powerful? They'd be like, oh, just look at the cross. Satan was defeated on the cross. That's, that's how we know that God is powerful. That kind of transitioned in the last uh, thousand years where now we kind of look to the resurrection or maybe even the miracles of Jesus. Be like, hey, he, he calmed a storm. He's powerful. But really, there's so much power happening on the cross because Satan and evil was defeated on the cross. That's where this power is. But how does this actually work? I mean, because Jesus is just up there on the cross, right? Like, how is he defeating Satan? In fact, doesn't he look like the defeated party? Doesn't Jesus look like the defeated party here? Well, lucky for us, Paul, the Apostle Paul, sought to help us out a little bit in Colossians chapter two. He wants to bring us up to speed with what exactly happened on the cross. He's talking to Christians. He's trying to empower them to live their faith in a real way in the world. And so he's gonna point to where they draw power from, the cross. In verse 13, He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That word dead there can also be translated condemned. Um, It's talking about that greater war that, that Satan had found a way to condemn all of humanity before God. 
because all of us really participate with Adam and Eve in that um, rejection of God's, uh, of, God, of depending on God to determine good and evil in our lives. We think we can do that ourselves. That's a, a human thing to do. And so he, Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how does he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is what Dave talked about last week, that on the cross, our record of debt, all of our sin was put on Jesus and experienced the punishment for that sin. He did that for us so that those who have faith in him don't need to go through that process. Jesus did that on the cross. It's been, the the record of debt has been settled. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But then that means something else happened too. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. By triumphing over them. He disarmed them. You see, what the atonement means, if you and I have had our sin removed from us and put on, on Jesus, what atonement means is that Satan no longer has a weapon of accusation against us. That time, where the, the time all up to Christ where he can go before God and say, see, they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty. You need to eliminate them in your justice. Aren't you a just God? He no longer can do that because they're innocent. They're innocent. They're innocent. And, and this is the central core of, of how the church understood the cross for so long, which was Satan no longer has a weapon that Jesus took Satan's weapon of accusation away from him on the cross. Any lingering thoughts that we have that seek to accuse, um, accuse ourselves before God is actually just a remnant of that age of accusation, the satanic age of accusation. Because in reality, uh, that one thing that you did a long time ago that, that you uh, haven't told anybody about you're not accused for that any longer if you have faith in Jesus. Nope. You've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb, Paul says elsewhere. Or maybe it's even that sin that that you've been trying to eliminate from your life but keep on participating in it. Nope. You've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. All your sin has been put on Christ, past, present, and future. There's nothing that you can do where you can be accused before God again. That's crazy. Now, this isn't something that we should just blindly accept. This is something that we're invited to experience. How how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, the main way you can do that is by using your imagination. Using your imagination. Put yourself before the cross. Put yourself before the cross. Uh, Look at Christ up on the cross. Look at the the sin that is being dealt with, all your sin, and put it on him by confessing it to him. This is counterintuitive. How can you not be accused or how can you not experience being accused is by naming it already. And Jesus looks back at you and says, that's been forgiven. That's been forgiven. And that's how you can experience grace. And so this is fascinating Because this dynamic, Paul says, he says, um, 
This puts the, the rulers and authorities, including Satan, to open shame. Why is that? Why does this put Satan to open shame? Well, he's been fully disarmed, but also what's really interesting is Satan built the cross. He built the cross. Um, if you look at the gospel accounts, we actually see Satan's activity um, is primarily focused on getting Jesus on the cross, and he's successful in doing that. Like he enters, Satan, or Satan enters Judas, it says, to convince him to betray him over to the, the religious authorities. The religious authorities, um, uh, Satan brings people to accuse Jesus before them. Satan uh, actually afflicts the, the wife of Pontius Pilate in a dream, it says, we kind of skip over that, in a dream, so much so that she says, she goes to her husband and she's like, whatever the people want to do with this Jesus, just do it because I've been afflicted a bunch. Satan is the one who's building the cross. But here's what's interesting. He didn't see atonement coming. He didn't see atonement that was gonna happen on the cross. And so while Satan may have built the cross, God was the architect of the cross. God is the one who, who wrote up the blueprint of the cross, and in that blueprint, atonement was attached to it. Satan didn't realize that, and so he is put to open shame, and he, the, thing, the very thing that he builds eliminates himself and takes away all of his power. In reality, it seems that he's building his own cross for him to die on and perish on. And this dynamic is what we, is the most helpful dynamic to wrestle with the problem of evil with. Because God in his goodness and his power, he doesn't see evil and, and completely eliminate it. Yet, he will do that one day. He says he's gonna do that one day. But in his goodness and in his power, he frustrates it. He frustrates it. He works, and we see this on the cross as the, the, the most extreme example of this. He works through evil happening on the cross, Satan's evil that he's seeking to put on the cross, and uses it to disperse his glory and grace to all of humanity. So God, in his power and in his goodness, he actually sees evil, and he frustrates it to use it to administer grace to his people. And this is why you hear Christians say really, really crazy things. This is why they say insane things. If you've been around Christians for a while, um, some of the things they say may surprise you. Like, um, I'm really glad that God has allowed me to experience this chronic illness for the past couple of years because I have encountered so much grace as a result. That's crazy. That's crazy. In, in the Christian faith and in Christians, what you'll see is people experiencing evil and God frustrating that evil to bring them grace in their life. This is how evil has been defeated on the cross. God takes it all and now he's working grace through it in a very, very real way. So that, that's the battle of the cross. Disarmed, Satan took away his weapon of accusation and becomes the instrument for which grace is distributed to all who would have faith in Jesus. All of evil has been defeated on the cross. And now we have to get back to that skeptic's question. Hold up, there's a lot of evil out there. And when I look at a lot of it, it doesn't seem to be bringing anybody glory but other evil people, right? 
This is um, a present reality, right? And the, the most helpful, uh, the best place to start with it is actually by looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say about uh, Satan because he seems to be in direct contradiction to Jesus' words in, um, in John chapter 12 that we read that he says the ruler of this world has been cast out. We're gonna put those on the screen for you. This is in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul's writing to his church uh, to one of the churches he started, and he's telling them about what's going on with the non-Christians they want to be a part of their church. He says, and even if our gospel it's veiled, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What? Paul puts Satan, he's writing after Jesus' death, he puts Satan back up there as the God of this world. But Jesus just said he cast out the ruler of this world. That's interesting. But it actually even gets a little bit worse for us. Um, and and uh, Jesus' disciple Peter uh, wrote a letter to the church as well. And in it, he wrote this. He said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Dikes. Clearly, Satan uh, hasn't been completely cast out. Am I right? That's what, that's what this looks like. And, and the way that we need to understand this is really to understand the concept of how uh, kingdoms work. How kingdoms work. Because kingdoms are, are where kings reign. Kingdoms are where kings reign. So if we do a quick uh, history of kingdom, God created everything, he called it very good. His will was done in absolutely everywhere. He was king, it was his kingdom. And then Satan comes in and takes over through rebellion and now we have a kingdom that is uh, Satan. Uh, kingdoms, uh, Satan's kingdom over the whole world. And then God attempts to, to weave his kingdom back into the world through people of faith, and he chooses Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to weave my kingdom back into this world, and it's going to touch every single nation out there through your offspring. And from Abraham comes Israel. And, and Israel, while it is God's kingdom on paper, it's clear that they're falling very far short of what God's kingdom was meant to look like. And that's primarily because accusation hasn't been dealt with. They're still standing accused before God. Now, they had practices of atonement that they did, but in reality, these were just meant to help them look towards the atonement that one prophet would bring one day for sin in general. It was, it, it was never actually effective or in, in taking their sin away from them. They still stood accused before God. Dave talked about that a little bit last week. Satan still had that weapon, okay? But Jesus on the cross starts a new kingdom where this weapon is no longer there and now it has the capability to actually do incredibly powerful things here on earth. But it's not gonna happen all at once. It's gonna happen through God's people slowly over time. And 2,000 years later, we've actually seen it grow not only in just number, I mean, the people who uh, called themselves disciples of Jesus after he died was about 100 people at first. And now we're at 2 billion that are alive. Like that's, that's, a, that's a lot of growth, right? That's, that's a lot of growth. Uh, percentages, I don't know, anyways. A billion percent. Um, that's a lot of growth. But there's still this element where Satan has power in the world to Paul's point and to Peter's point. 
And so we have to actually uh, adopt a method of confident realism is what I call it. We can't be too triumphant. We can't be too triumphant and think that the battle has been won, Satan has been crushed. He has been defeated, but he has not been crushed. And we can't be too defeatist either. We can't just throw up our hands in there and say, Satan's ruling like a lion. Look at all the evil to do, or the evil out there. There's nothing we can do. So we have to have a confident realism that navigates between both these ditches of triumphalism and defeatism. Confident realism gets us there. And there's two practices of confident realism that we're given um, in order to do this. That if we do, if we do these practices, if we lean into them, then we actually find ourselves confident and realistic and engaged. The first one is, is called the armor of God. The armor of God. And I just want to look at it quickly with you guys together today. Oh, that sun's really coming in. Words are getting faint. It's okay. It's great, right? It's going to be glorious outside. All right. Uh, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand what? Against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And this is the armor of God. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts from the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's all abstract, right? What actually is that? What is the full or the whole armor of God? I wish we could do a sermon series on just that, but it's not coming up in the near future. Maybe one day we will. But if you're a Christian and you have a Bible, what you can do is, I mean, you also have the Holy Spirit. You can lean into this passage. And if this, this passage isn't a part of your regular routines as a Christian, it's probably time to add it to start praying through these things and asking God, what is this, the helmet of salvation? And have him remind you of what your salvation is. What is the sword of truth? And have him bring you into his word, all right? This should be part of your ongoing practice of being a Christian, of your relationship with God, something to lean into because it does a great thing uh, that helps bring this confident realism. It points to the fact that we're in a war and that Satan's kingdom is still out there, and we're pushing forward and trying to bring the kingdom of God in more and more places. It's a full armor of God. And then, then the second thing that we, the second practice we have is that we trust in the final state of affairs. We trust in the fact that Satan was defeated on, that, on the cross, that his defeat has been pronounced, and although it's not here in full, it will one day fully be here, and God promises it. Uh, Paul closes his uh, letter to the Romans, the, the church in Rome, with one, one, a phrase that goes like this, uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How awesome is that? That's actually what's going to happen, and he's already starting to do it. The picture here is Satan had a weapon of accusation against us, but God's weapon against Satan is the church. 
And God uses the church to crush Satan. He uses you and he uses me. And the more that we lean into the cross, we find more fuel in order to bring the movement forward right here in our own lives and into the city of Seattle. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I just thank you right now for all my friends, my non-Christian friends here, my, uh, my superstitious disciples here, uh, my fellow skeptics out there. And Lord, we, we just are... Uh, we, we just love the fact that, that you have been working uh, in history to bring people to yourself. And we count ourselves uh, blessed to have heard your word this morning. And we look forward to, to you and, and your, the way that you're going to fulfill it through your church, through your church here. Um, and so I pray right now as, as we go into our weeks that, that we would lean into what it means to put on the whole armor of God. Uh, that we would lean into what it means that, that you seek to crush Satan under our feet. Um, and God, that we would be able to participate in your kingdom in these meaningful ways uh, this week. God, may, may, we, may we ask you how to do that best. All right. Pray this by, the, by your powerful spirit who empowers us to do that and, and by your son who pronounced the defeat of Satan. Amen.